Tom, how's everything going? Well, I'm back in good health, and I trust you're back in good health, too. Well, um, I'm doing okay, but I'll tell you, there must have been a little sympathetic magic going on with your statement of last show saying, let's find a way to to render Chris speechless. (laughs) And uh, I guess it worked, so... Well, I'm sorry to hear that folks who are listening in may be wondering why we haven't had a show uh, quite as frequently as previous shows. Both Chris and I have been unwell, but I think Chris has been slightly more unwell than I have. I was at least able to, uh, I don't know, I I guess I had a kind of Barry White thing going on for for about a week there, but you were actually without voice for a period of time. Yes, my wife was thrilled. (laughs) Very good, very good. Well, uh, I've got some interesting stumps here, but um, before we get to that, you've got a lot of you've got a lot of stuff to talk about. You went to the was it called the Open Doors show? Um, yeah, the Doors Open event um, was was pretty much the the major event that uh, that I've so far missed out in updating everyone on. But uh, I just wanted to clear up, if we could, the uh, the issue of the stump from last show. Ah. Uh, I know somebody out there is desperately awaiting their T-shirt, so I think uh, I think we should solve that issue right off the bat if we can. Okay, why not? All right. Um, Matt's question was, who was the first company to produce the uh, a smoking electric locomotive? And uh, I had guessed Marks, and it turns out, much to my embarrassment, that it was actually... Uh, A.C. Gilbert, the S-Scale company, in 1946. So I guess uh, that qualifies Matt as uh, the winner of the T-shirt. Wow. Uh, unless, unless, unless <laughs> we, uh, unless we make the, uh, make the rule that you, you have to know the answer when, when you ask the stump question. Uh, uh, well, Matt is in again this week, so why don't I put in his question this week? We'll see... You see, I think everyone's lifted their game with regards to the stump. I wasn't going to do this, but since you raised the issue, I think folks uh, for the initial stump were actually a little easy on you, and all the questions seem to have raised their game and provided answers, what's more. So why don't we start with Matt when we get to the stump, because I think all of them would probably score a T-shirt by the asking. But I I don't want to underestimate your overwhelming knowledge of uh, the model rail hobby. Uh, but they oh, were I'm certainly. Doomed. Is that what you're saying? Pardon? I, I'm doomed, aren't I? Uh, 
Uh, well, I'm ultimately doomed because I'm the one that sends out the T-shirts. But um, yeah, you, you, I don't know. I don't know. You you can pull. You can pull. I mean, for example, your guess on Steve's question last show I thought was particularly good. <laughs> So, Chris, the Doors Open show, what was All right, it like? let's, uh, let's go back to that. Um, the Doors Open show, first of all, it, it was part of the, the City of Toronto's uh, promotional event for the year, which opened up a number of historic and uh, significant, otherwise significant buildings to the general public for their viewing pleasure. And um, as such, the people that were attending and wandering around from, from location to location, they weren't the typical train show crowd. Uh, that is that they didn't really know much about model trains uh, or live steam. So when they came and asked questions and looked at what was going on, uh, they, they were newbies. They, they were coming from the... Uh, the bottom of the the knowledge tree at that point in time. So a quick a quick question here, Chris. I mean, my experience, I stumbled upon a train show in Lincoln, Nebraska, by accident uh, one time. It was a, a full size train show, but they they had trains, um, steam trains, and, and things like that. And my experience there was literally, I was walking down downtown Lincoln. I was there for a friend's wedding with my wife. It was very humid, uh, possibly about this time, actually uh, a couple of years ago now. Walking down the main street of the town, I saw, oh, there's a crowd of people over there, wandered down with my wife, heard a jazz band, and then was confronted by some beautiful 060 and, you know, two, probably 282 or something like that, locomotives and various other things like that. Was it something where basically the general public could stumble across it just by walking through a a part of Toronto, is that how it occurred, or was it actually in a specific place that people would need to drive to and turn up at? Well, the uh, the old John Street Roundhouse is located right at the the root of the city. It's at the base of the CN Tower. It's right next to the Rogers Centre. There was a baseball game on. Uh, the Steam Whistle Brewery is on the site of the uh, of the Roundhouse. And there's a lot of foot traffic in the area for uh, various venues that, uh, that host uh, events. And the doors open just happen to be, you know, coincident to a lot of things that are going on. So a lot of the people coming through were simply passers-by. And uh, some were there deliberately because they had heard that the Railway Heritage Association had... Uh, put their exhibits on display as part of this, as part of this event at the Roundhouse. Um, uh, the Roundhouse being only one of uh, over a hundred buildings open to the public, but uh, I don't think specifically anywhere that uh, people were told that there were actually going to be model trains at the Roundhouse as well. So it seemed to be a bit of a surprise. We got quite a bit of. Uh, of traffic and uh, a lot of people uh, standing around and asking questions and uh, kibitzing with the people doing the displays, even though it, it wasn't a train show in the traditional sense where it was advertised off uh, at some uh, side venue somewhere uh, with vendors and everything like that. It was simply 
for display purposes and to tie into the theme of the roundhouse in this case. But I'll tell you, the, the displays, the equipment that, that the Heritage Association has managed to collect for themselves so far uh, are really terrific. There's a, a lovely little station and a signal box uh, for controlling all of the, uh, the switch points. Uh, there's a, a waiting station, uh, which is like just a, a small glass structure where you would sit uh, at a flag stop. They've managed to restore the, the turntable at the roundhouse so they can bring equipment onto the turntable and, and spin it around. Uh, they were also uh, holding <clears throat> excuse me, uh, trials of the, the hand cars. People were able to get onto a hand car and pump it across the, uh, the length of the turntable and back again to, to get an idea of what it was like to, uh, to actually have to operate one of those. Uh, the owner of Rapido Trains, uh, Jason Tron, is one of the, the directors at, uh, at the Heritage Association. He was present trying to raise awareness and raise some money for the saving of one of the light, rapid, comfortable uh, engines that were used on the commuter service between Montreal and Toronto. And uh, via the, the carrier is actually scrapping all of those engines, and uh, Jason is keen on having one of them saved for the, for the Heritage Association. Uh, there are a couple of uh, Canadian Pacific switchers on site and a really nice wrecking crane and uh, a beautiful Canadian National Northern steam locomotive, a high hood GP7 uh, that's absolutely beautifully restored, and smaller items like a Fairbanks Morse inspection car, and cabs from a couple of different locomotives, including what looks like a GE and, a, and an old F unit. And those are being wired up for the trains simulation software and the control stands are all interfaced. The, the prototypical, the real life control stand is being uh, hooked up to the train simulators via uh, a number of uh, interface boards. And unfortunately, I could only get close enough to actually photograph the stands and I couldn't actually get to, to operate anything. The lines were incredibly long to get close. <laughs> so I was, uh, I was denied. My my nerdliness was denied. Oh no! Uh, so, you didn't show yeah, your well, card and the handshake. Uh, no, I think I think there was a sp extra special uh, restriction on it. Uh, first come, first uh, first serve nerds this time. Right. And the kids the kids really needed to do this. This was uh, this was for the people that don't get to do this all the time. It wasn't for for us. If if I really wanted to, I could contact one of the local clubs and find out when they were going to have a, a private uh, session yeah. down at the, uh, the uh, Heritage Association site and then somehow wrangle an invitation and get down when it was less hectic. And, you know, it's, uh, it's a lot better if the kids and the people that aren't as familiar or aren't as, um, uh, let's say, obsessive about the hobby get a chance to, to actually enjoy these things. Uh, without them being covered in drool, you know. Certainly. Uh, <laughs> and you met a listener but, there too, didn't you? Yes, actually. Uh, Brian Schilling. Uh, he's the program coordinator now at the Aaron Mills Model Railroad Association, which is a club that I belonged to a number of years ago, uh, uh, south of my current location. 
And uh, he had been talking to me about coming out to the club uh, one night in the fall and just reviewing some of the the changes that uh, that have happened to the hobby because of technology that's arisen in the next in the last ten or fifteen years. And uh, he had not indicated that he was going to be at the at the event, but uh, oddly enough, I managed to snap a photo of his uh, himself and his family looking at the live steam equipment uh, before we actually got a chance to meet. Uh-huh. So, and yeah, it was, uh, in terms of this club, is this like a fixed layout club at some particular location? Um, the Iron Mills Club used to have a retail store. Wow. They used to occupy a retail store uh, in off-season in one of the local shopping malls. And the reciprocal agreement with the management was that they would provide the store, provide public access to the display at the store uh, two nights a week, at least two nights a week during the week, so that they would, the the shopping mall would garner some extra foot traffic. Certainly. Because, of course, the the kids and the adults would want to come in and see the trains running. So would they have to Uh, build it every year? A new layout every um, year, or did they keep the same layout and just dismantle it and put it in? Well, they had a uh, they had a, an HO modular layout, uh, and there is also an N scale modular layout. But the, really, the the HO layout was big enough to consume most of the available space in the store. So um, during the winter time, around Christmas, the, sometimes there would be extra displays set up in the in the central corridors of the of the mall uh, to promote you know model trains and kind of toys for the kids and whatnot. So there would be uh, varying levels of participation. But recently, the, the retail space has been consumed again by by uh, real store owners, if you will. And uh, that's been unavailable in the last couple of years for them to, uh, to use as their regular space. So they set up during the typical train shows uh, throughout the season, uh, rather than having the store as a central location now. So do they meet at people's houses leading up to the... Do they still do a display over the Christmas period in the mall, or have they given up that aspect as well? Uh, that I'm not sure of. Uh, whether or not they're they're still doing a display at the mall, it's possible. But uh, they do meet monthly at one of the local churches. So there's a, there's a monthly meeting with uh, looking after the business of the club, plus usually clinics or... Uh, there's a, there's a period of socialization after the business portion of the meeting, and then they go into clinics and displays. And there's a an annual contest night, and uh, there's a, usually some some refreshments and things sold out of the the canteen at the at the church hall. So it's it's uh, it's actually a pretty good club. The, I think the maximum membership at one time was 120 people. Gosh. So and that varied in skill level from the absolute beginner up to master model railroaders. Um, one of the one of the master model railroaders from that club is responsible for me being in S scale in the first place uh, mm. through a, through a conversation that we had after one of the club meetings and uh, led me down a, a different path. And I guess it's his fault. I'm where I'm at right now. <laughs> uh, it, uh, the the doors open event itself was great. The weather was beautiful. The attendance was 
very high. Uh, the miniature railway at the site was well patronized by the visitors. Uh, I was hoping that there would be some uh, steam engines pulling the the people around, but in fact, they had a number of uh, small gas mechanical engines. Uh, I would assume probably for insurance purposes right. uh, rather than... Yeah, uh, there, there does seem to be an enhanced concern for uh, public safety these days, and there's a lot of worry about liability in the case of live steam. Some of the boilers are above the the limit required for uh, pressure vessel certification. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot of uh, hands off and let's not go that route when you start talking about having the public around. So uh, a bit of a disappointment there, but nobody's really seemed to mind too much. It was just the diehards that were were expecting the uh, the larger scale live steam. On Sunday, there were two days, and uh, I was down on the Sunday, and I took my my locomotive and a and a coach to pull around. There were four or five other members of the group uh, that also brought steam locomotives, and uh, we had a great time. We were we were so crowded. There were so many people asking questions, and they hadn't uh, they had to come to the realization that the the smoke coming out of the stack wasn't just something burning. Uh, it was actually boiling water and real steam, and that's what made the trains go. And uh, once they realized that, they they stayed and asked, oh, tons of other questions. And there were several people who expressed an interest in what it would take to get their own steam locomotives. So it's possible that we've corrupted uh, a few of the, the populace. Interesting. Uh, Very good. In a good way. In a good way, but very good. Uh, in, in addition to the uh, the Railway Heritage Association promoting their their exhibit and trying to raise money for the LRC locomotive, there was a uh, a couple of people there from the Halton County Radial Railway, which is a preservation uh, site not too far from my new home here. That uh, that has restored and is maintaining a collection of trolleys uh, and electric vehicles from this area, including some from the interurban line that used to run between uh, the Niagara Peninsula and Toronto many years ago. So you can actually take a a ride at their museum in a fully restored uh, width streetcar traveling through the bush under overhead wire. And uh, it's actually quite exciting uh, they're quiet and comfortable, and uh, it would have been a wonderful way to travel in the past uh, if you were commuting from point to point or traveling into the city on business. So I'm going to have to drop by and see them in person again <laughs> because they've they've uh, piqued my curiosity, and I want to see what they've been doing with their displays. Uh, it's It's great to be able to see what's being saved uh, North America is not as big on railway preservation as they are in the UK, and any efforts that happen really are they're on the the thin edge uh, of the wedge when they're trying to raise awareness and raise money and and uh, keep some of these uh, brilliantly 
brilliantly built and, and very well appointed uh, examples of, of craftsmanship in running condition and available for us to to uh, enjoy for ourselves. So if you get a chance, listeners, please support your local museums and support your local preservation societies and historical associations because once, if they slip past a certain point, they're gone forever and no one knows whatever happens to collections at that stage. Sometimes they just get broken up and sold off to either private collectors or scrapped and that's that's criminal. Uh, if you've got a bit of extra... I know it's a tough time, but if you've got a bit of extra kicking around, um, sacrifice a couple of cups of coffee a week and put it aside and maybe put it in the box at the local museum for uh, so the people in the future get to enjoy it as well. Certainly, certainly. I mean, in my area, I get the sense, and really this was my experience in Nebraska as well, that the likes of Union Pacific and these kind of large rail companies maintain their own um, kind of historical fleets as well. So I'm not sure whether uh, this is a phenomenon which just exists on the larger, uh, I, I don't even know what you call them, rail corporations, I guess, in the U.S., um, but certainly I've heard from you and others uh, stories of impeding doom uh, for I guess historical rail collections as they exist in New England and up into Canada. So I'm not sure whether it's the the vast distances or the monopolies in my area of the world that maintain uh, a small number, at least, uh, of these kind of locomotives. Certainly the reason that Lincoln, Nebraska was the location was because it is right next to Omaha and probably slightly easier to hold a historical train show um, in terms of it being a slightly smaller town that's about an hour out of uh, Omaha, Nebraska. And of course Union Pacific's seven mile long yard or something like that is just outside of Lincoln. So I think they maintain a lot of their historical trains up there. Um, but certainly it sounds like uh, there are a number of uh, a number of these locomotives uh, that are in need of repair and have associated local societies. So if this is applicable to you listeners, um, I guess Google is your friend here in terms of finding out what's available to you locally and what uh, what particular locomotives may need support. Yeah, it's a good idea. So uh, where are we for, for last since uh, last show? I think we had some topics that uh, that came up in the discussion list or on uh, the Facebook page. Certainly. What I, what I was thinking was probably, do you have anything else to give us an update for your past three, four weeks? Um, well, I was just uh, feeling so awful and under the weather that I <laughs> didn't get around to much of anything. No I did uh, push around some, some uh, rubble and whatnot in the backyard trying to make, make a little more sense of where things are going, and I... I took out some of the components, the, the rail and the tie strips that I received and tried to get a handle on what I'm going to need to, to manipulate these and, and get them into the right shape for the, for the curves. I'm going to need to fabricate a, a bending fixture to, uh, to actually pre-bend the rail before I put it in place. And, uh, oh yes, uh, I was warned that there would be people coming up here to help me start digging fence posts and putting up a substructure, whether I liked it or not, <laughs> within the next within the next 30 days. So oh, okay. I'm, 
I'm guessing uh, I'm guessing they want some of my uh, barbecued hamburgers as the the host is typically uh, yeah. providing the meal, so yeah. the, the yeah. refreshment. So. so if you're bound and gagged and put in a corner for the next model rail radio, so these people can actually do this work, maybe they could at least speak on the show on your behalf. <laughs> well, I've I've also been invited down to work on a uh, another fellow's uh, new garden railway. He's got the the basic. Uh, support structure built, but he wants to put down uh, cedar ties. So he wants to have a session where we rip all of the cedar planking to the right width and then chop it into tie tie-sized pieces. And uh, he's keen to do that. He, I saw the the switch building jigs that he he had borrowed the other day, and they've got to be three three and a half foot long each for the number eight turnouts. So. He's going to be a busy, busy boy for the next <laughs> for the next little while. Yeah, that was my next uh, question, actually. So three and a half feet for a number eight turnout. Okay, I'm just visualizing that. That sounds about right. Yes, gosh. Yeah, yeah number really eight turnout, though, probably isn't too prototypical unless you're doing close to mainline-style trains, I would assume. Uh, well, actually, number eight's pretty small, all things considered. If you look at the, the main lines, uh, standard gauge main lines, they're number 16, number 20, you know, sort of frog numbers for the diverging routes. They're, they're really quite long and, uh, and gentle in their divergence. Uh, number eight just seems to be a common, uh, I guess we as modelers get kind of tied up in the smaller numbers because we're typically trying to work in such small spaces relative to the size of the trains. We're always trying to put too much into the space, I guess. But uh, you think, well, number eight, that's pretty good. And the Garrett locomotives will go through it. Uh, the uh, the larger uh, Denver and Rio Grande style uh, K-series locomotives will go through it. But still... It's a pretty tight turnout. It's just, you know, when you're thinking about it, three and a half feet, that's huge, but it's all relative. So Certainly, certainly. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, I guess we're up to my update. Well, similar to, similar to yours, I've been, uh, been a little under the weather. However, I was able to connect some electricity to my shelf layout. Had I actually laid track when I was last on the show? I can't recall. I think I probably had because I recall relaying the track and putting the camper tape down before our last show. So you had received the track. You were going to use the camper tape. I think you were either just going ahead or you just finished a okay. portion of the track. Okay. So anyway, I connected. I ordered a locomotive from uh, an outfit in your part of the world. Uh, a little LMS. I want to say it's a zero six zero and connected electricity and ran it briefly one evening and then put it downstairs and showed it to my brother via video chat. My, my family's based in Australia. And through the process of showing it to him, dropped it on the ground uh, oh and then cleaned it up a little bit and then put it back. And thankfully, none of the delicate parts were broken. And uh, since then, I was out last weekend with the wife and noticed the largest uh, hobby model store in Las Vegas had closed and in a state of panic discovered that they had in fact relocated 
Uh, so we went to their new location, which is probably about two-thirds the size of their old location and really just seemed kind of piled on top of themselves, uh, but at least they're still operating, and picked up some ballasting rock, three bags worth of it, and really haven't done much more since then. The plan is to make sure, uh, well, really to do more tests on the electrical uh, connections and uh, in particular because I'm using Hornby turnouts the switching adds power to the tracks in a rather strange way which I wasn't really expecting having used Atlas previously so the way that I wire may have to be slightly altered to allow for that, nothing too major but just uh, considering different connection points so that will add a little bit of time. Uh, my anticipation was probably to do it over this weekend or next weekend. Uh, and then start the, uh, the fun of ballasting. I also ordered doors and windows from uh, the company in Canada that sent me the, the train. And that's one of the things that I found when I was doing my balsa wood model building, that the size of the doors and the windows, getting the exact size of that, was probably more critical than getting any other dimensions right, uh, particularly because the kind of haphazard building nature of the areas that I'm looking to model in the UK, that, uh, well, just by doing the Google Street View along various towns, you can see the, I don't know, development of kind of 100-year, 40-year, 20-year additions to various buildings. So you can see the way things started out being and then progressively adding stuff, which I, I think has been a, a theme on the KitCast podcast as well, the idea that if you're modelling buildings as, as you are in the UK that are 100-plus years old, the architecture will probably have changed quite a bit over time in terms of just additions and probably more modern myths and trying to adhere to styles but not trying to do it, do it quite right. So in terms of actual walls and ceilings and these kind of things, actual building shapes, less important than getting the windows and doors right. So my plan is to the first building will be the engine house. And I've got a rough idea of what I want it to look like. I'm now in search of prototypical buildings. Uh, I think um, Duncan McCree from memory is pretty good at knowing uh, areas in the UK uh, via Google Street View, he was able to point me in the direction of a, a train or two uh, that were you know, visible from Street View. So I think he's probably spent a few hours on there or he's part of a community that tracks these kind of things. But in terms of the uh, specific buildings, I think uh, it will be just a single, single track entry uh, engine house, nothing particularly spectacular, probably with a I don't know, a little office along the side or something like that, some kind of quarters, maybe with a chimney, uh, potentially thematically, uh, you know, people cooking, uh, you know, beans or maybe making a pot of tea or that kind of stuff. I think really in the nature of these kind of extremely short line trains of the kind of Lake District area that... Uh, uh, there's a large portion of artistic license that's available, and I'm really looking forward to that. I want to kind of vein into the topic of discussion associated with our, our modelling tables because my 
original aim was to record the show this week from my modelling table in the library downstairs where I'm slowly constructing the bits and pieces to actually build this uh, engine house. And uh, I was thinking about the topic of discussion was basically what tools can we not live without? What are our most important tools? And looking around there, I have a lot of very fine pins that I hold things together with. I have uh, a few clothes pegs, which are very useful for, for holding things together. But really, my scalpels and my glue are the only critical things that I have in that modelling area. I have some paintbrushes and various other things. But for general modelling purposes, scalpel, glue, uh, occasional clothes pegs, and a, a number of pins to hold things in place, they seem to be my critical items on my modelling table currently. What, what were your critical items, Chris? Uh, well, again, uh, my it's measure, uh, measure, mark, cut, and glue in that order. But I was wondering, when you mentioned scalpels, uh, why do you have a preference for the scalpels over, say, the X-Acto blades or the Ulta blades? My feeling, well, the stuff that I've done previously, I've varied the blade size um, from kind of, uh, well, even more, almost like box cutter blades for larger stuff, uh, down to scalpels. And for the stuff that I'm doing currently, I guess I had a long discussion with a fellow in a local hobby store about this, because certainly my background with regards to modeling is in Baltimore, things like boats, uh, and I guess also model planes and these kind of things. But I've always preferred a smaller, kind of with, with a greater degree of dexterity. I really don't like the knives that have any um, degree of thickness to them. I would like to use it almost like a pen, basically, uh, for cutting. And I think for a lot of the shaping tasks as well, I know that if I do four slight cuts with a scalpel, I'll probably get it more exact than if I pre-measure and, and do all these kind of things in terms of using a different kind of blade. I think it's all personal preference, really, Chris, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm, I've am i got a couple of scalpels, uh, and, and uh, they were from a dissecting kit uh, from biology, I don't know how many years ago now. But uh, outside of school, I'd never thought of really adopting them for modeling. I've been a a firm, confirmed user of the Exacto number 11 blades and the uh, the small saw blades, which are, are brilliant for uh, for cutting in close quarters. Certainly. Um, I, are you talking small maybe, saw? Are you are you talking like a thin saw blade, or are you talking the flat saw blade? It's it's uh, trapezoidal in profile okay. and has very very fine teeth and fits in the small. Uh, the small exacto handle, right. and I find that it, it actually does a very good job uh, for cutting styrene and wood in in tight quarters. It's not strong enough for anything other than soft brass, but then again, you know, soft brass you can actually score and cut uh, if it's thin enough too. So, um, yeah, I know you have a, a strong background in in the figures and and wargaming figures and models. And I was wondering the other day, for your white metal, because there are a number of white metal kits available for model model trains, 
Certainly. What, what adhesive do you find most useful for holding together the white metal components? Well, you have to Are pin it no matter pair? what. I mean, I think th- my technique has always been pinning where I use a very small drill and even even just literally filament wire uh, in some circumstances. But that was the other point I was going to make. I probably have more glues than the, your traditional, you know, model. This is the thing that strikes me particularly from the Scotty Mason show, is that he talks about canopy glue. But really, canopy glue oh, yes. is, is... I mean, I... I guess I've always just had a lot of glues, a lot of different glues that are just right for the right application. So in white metal, it depends on the weight of the metal. It depends on the weight of the metal, kind of the join, all the things, and really I select my glue based on that purpose. The other thing that I found, um, particularly because there are very, there are severe temperature gradients here, and I keep um, I keep all of my toy soldier stuff as climate controlled as possible, particularly because of lead oxidization and various other things. It's not just all... um, I've got a lot of historical stuff, which is lead. So I'm very sensitive towards uh, a variety, using a variety of glues with that because of long-term reactivity. In fact, ironically, a lot of my uh, communication with the higher people in, in the toy soldier industry... Is relates to long-term aging issues associated with very old lead. So, right. in terms of the glues that I use, it varies greatly depending on uh, the purpose. I don't use as many resins as I did when I was in the UK or Australia. Uh, I, I I basically vary depending on uh, on application purpose. I think there are a lot of good general purpose glues which will give you a certain amount of lifetime for uh, particular kinds of use. But if you... A toy soldier is a bit different to... Well, perhaps not a locomotive, because you do actually touch and pick up a locomotive. But if you have something that is static, and I don't know, I, I think it's a... There's a glue for almost every purpose, but the use of the glue, and this is a point that my wife and other people, co-workers, because... You know, I find myself in hardware stores occasionally with co-workers. And I spend long periods of time in the glue section picking out not just what I think will be the right glue, but also glues around that glue as well. Um, so, for, so you're describing thin white metal that you're attaching to other white metal, or what, what, are you, what kind of gluing are you doing in particular? Well, what, what reminded me of this or what brought this up was, first of all, the, the question about adhesives on the discussion list. And I thought, well, what do I actually use? I only use about three or four different kinds of glue on a regular basis. But I had picked up uh, a model of a, uh, an export uh, diesel from, uh, uh, it was, I purchased from a New Zealand company. And the body of the locomotive is actually white metal, uh, kind of American pewter, Mm-hmm. Um, and it flats, and of course it had to be assembled together. And having had some experience with this this material in a soldering iron and turning it into an, no. an unrecognizable blob <laughs> on the table, yes, um, you know, I thought this is this is not good. And uh, while super glues are terrific for a lot of things, they're not suitable for heavy components in in my experience. So what I actually did was uh, I took uh, took the advice of uh, 
uh, more advanced bottler, and I actually created fillets of slow-curing epoxy resin, uh, like two-part epoxy, and uh, like I had everything tacked together and squared up, and then I filled in all of the corners on the inside of the body with uh, fairly generous fillets of this epoxy resin, and it is incredibly solid. It, It hasn't shifted a, 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 microm- a micrometer uh, at, over the time I've had it assembled. But for myself, I, I use maybe five-minute epoxy sometimes, very little other than, than that application. I use standard white glue uh, like weld bond for all my wood-to-wood and, and wood-to-paper, although I find that the, water, uh, the water-bearing glues really kind of ruin the thin material. They, they get wrinkled and if you're not extremely careful, they get uh, uh, distorted. And uh, spray-mount adhesive for things like uh, cutouts on backdrops and uh, uh, appliques of uh, the, what do you call it now, the uh, shingle material, roofing shingle material and, and uh, textured papers and uh, uh, contact cement occasionally. But that's that's about it, and and all these other glues, flamingo glue and tacky glue and canopy glue. Yeah, they're all they're all brand names, though. I mean, this is the, unfortunately because I'm not downstairs in in the library, I can't read out the ingredients. And certainly, you did exactly what I would have recommended. Uh, the other technique, which is often used, is to use a pinning glue and then put the uh, epoxy uh, in a way where basically you you get the instantaneous aspect of one glue and then you use the the epoxy. Um, as, a, as a finishing. There are a variety of, um, I don't even know what you describe it, there are a variety of groups of white glue. And this is the thing that interests me in this country in particular, the diversity of white glue, it isn't just based on brands, it's actually, um, I guess, not only the water content, but a lot of them use non-water stabilizers. So, for example, there is what I would call brown white glue and there is yellow white glue as you get here and they're distinctly different but they have similar properties to white glue but they don't seem to have the water content. And there you can also get various thicknesses of white glue. I'm not sure. Um, do, you, do you, When you use white glue, do you evaporate it before you use it in certain circumstances? Have you gotten that technique down? I have a, uh, a, a small steel plate that I decant an amount of glue onto and then I pick that up with a with a fine needle tip or a, a fine wire, and then I apply it in where I'm going at it. And what I've found is that yeah, it does uh, it does evaporate quite quickly on the plate and uh, thicken up, so the tackiness increases slightly. And if I spread it uh, thinly in the the area that I want to to join, um, it sets up very rapidly. Um, it's kind of surprising rather than what I used to do, of course, when I was younger, which is just apply it directly from the bottle to where I'm, <laughs> I'm working, and then ruin everything in the process. Get glue all over yourself and everything else. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's your life lesson. There is never apply glue directly from the bottle. When I was about fourteen, <laughs> and this indicates my kind of, I was probably about fourteen. I must have been around that age because I remember uh, recounting the story to friends. I made the mistake of opening, I, I guess I had my hands stuck on something, and the only way I could open the superglue was in my mouth, rotating it, and I only made that mistake once. 
Uh, I oh. guess until you've tasted super glue, you really haven't built certain models. But the technique that you described with regards to white glue, I now actually do quite formally. I mean, particularly in this dry environment. So if I need white glue of a particular consistency, particularly gluing any, I mean, balsa wood. If you're doing multi-part balsa wood connections with any degree of overlap, you can get a great benefit in almost lying your white glue out and giving it. Five, ten, even possibly fifteen minutes to get to exactly the right viscosity and lose a good degree of the water content that would cause warping. So there are various techniques that you can use with glue. But um, from the chat, I've used a variety of scalpels. I have them at a variety of budgets. I've never had any trouble buying scalpels. And um, there was a question in the chat about where I get them specifically. Uh, I have some relatively high-end Ravel ones. Uh, and I'm trying to think what the other brand is um, in terms of actual brand name. But you can also get... I, I haven't had any trouble buying cheap plastic scalpels, which I've embarrassingly used on a number of projects. But for the, for the, heavier, uh, for the heavier wood projects and things like that, I have some nice Ravel ones, which have blades that switch in and out with no problem. And I've never had any trouble buying scalpels per se. And they're always available in hobby stores as well, or certainly hobby stores in my area. Um, and I think, I, seem to, I think I've been able to purchase them in the UK and Australia as well. So um, I'm not sure. I think it was Matt Goodman uh, who had the question specifically with regards to where I got my scalpels from, but they're pretty omnipresent um, here. In fact, I think I've even bought some at Michael's. or Yeah, I think it was at Michael's, and possibly... Trying to think what other chain hobby store I bought scalpels in here, but you can get them in a variety of craft oriented stores as well, um, and I find them very useful. Uh, huh. So that was the question. I'm going to have to give them a try. Yeah, um, I think it's, it's funny. Just your hand technique more than anything. I mean, certainly my well, dealing with toy soldiers in particular, you're dealing with very fine and always the multiple cut technique you'll very rarely get things perfect initially the concept i guess which must exist in model rail too in certain quarters associated with mold lines and these kind of things which you get in uh metal figures and the way in which you remove them and so you have a variety of heavier metal and kind of almost blunter metal blades that are used to uh, remove mold lines and clean up various things and also in doing conversion work and these kind of things. Um, I also have uh, various cutters, tin snips, these kind of things, which I've amassed. Now, in terms of my hobby tools, they're, they're probably the ones that I've had for the longest period of time. Uh, a wide variety of files, uh, various little, um, not necessarily tweezer-like tools, but just things for doing small detail uh, prodding and poking and moving, which I'm actually using on my shelf layout uh, for various techniques as well. So these are the kind of tools that I, I have on my uh, work table. I also buy a lot of cheap brushes uh, and use them for a variety of things, just cleaning up more than anything, particularly if you're working in small areas, uh, and also some, some higher-end brushes for various painting and detailing. But um, I think that's about it with regards to my table. Do you have anything else to add? Um, I, well, if I go through my my uh, list of things, I have a couple of small uh, engineering style squares that I use for 
for marking and measuring, uh, which have a, instead of being a a consistent thickness all the way along the body, the the base of the square has a a thicker portion to it and you can rest it against the, the styrene or the wood that you're, that you're trying to get a, 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 per, a perpendicular line marked onto. And then I have a, um, a small scribe, which is a thin round handle, but the, the tip of the, the tip of the scribe is actually a, a carbide point that's replaceable. And it makes a, a really fine uh, line. And it's sharp enough that if I'm working with styrene, I can actually uh, start cutting the styrene with the scribe or tip. And, uh, after that, I get into the cutting tools. I really, I love my X-Actos. I've got a half a dozen handles with each with a different kind of blade on it, whether it's a number 11 or the, the blunt blade or the, uh, the flat hand chisel tip or the saw blade. And uh, a nibbler, a PC board nibbler that I picked up at uh, Radio Shack when they still existed here in Canada for doing the cutouts of uh, windows and doors. Uh, drill a, uh, uh, a hole in the center or near the edge of, of where you want your window or door opening and then use the nibbling tool uh, to uh, to come up to the edge uh, rather than trying to scribe and snap uh, in, in tight quarters. Uh, other than that, tweezers, clamps, uh, clamps of all kinds, uh, everything from, from uh, uh, the ones used in, in hair, uh, when you put, I guess the women do up their hair, they've got these little spring clips. Uh, they're very fine and uh, they can put uh, just the right amount of pressure on some things without uh, distorting or moving it. Uh, then up to uh, even paper clips. I've got little brass clamps that I, I don't even know where they came from. They're adjustable like a, like a pipe clamp, but they're built on a very small scale. And tweezers. I've never found a good pair of tweezers uh, except for the one that came in the dissecting kit and they're, they've disappeared on me over the course of years. So I've never really found a, a set of tweezers that did what I wanted to. And Would they be long nose tweezers? Would they be kind of with the, the tip of the tweezer actually being extended longer? What, what's, what's the quality which makes a good pair of tweezers for you, Chris? Well, for me, that was uh, they they were uh, not to, not too stiff a spring on them, and uh, the point is has instead of being a straight point, it's sort of like a hockey stick at the end. I find that that is a more u- most useful shape for me uh, because you can apply things in a straight manner, but you can also get the tweezer just around that little corner to put in uh, braces and blocks and and uh, other bits as you're as you're putting together structures and other kits but uh most of them have smooth that i've picked up recently have either smooth jaws or very crudely um toothed jaws very uh rough and the the parts tend to fly out and i've never had much luck with them but i'll keep looking every so often there at the hobby shows there's a vendor with uh, boxes of of files and screwdrivers and jewelers screwdrivers and then pliers and cutters and tweezers and every so often there's something worth buying but most of the time it seems to be surplus uh, dental 
picks and uh, little mirrors and and other uh, fairly cheaply made. I don't know whether they're knockoffs of medical equipment or they're used medical equipment or what, but uh, it's it's hard to find good hobby tool tools. Uh, the mini pliers that get sold are, are are too small for most people's hands, uh, unless you've got like really tiny hands. Uh, I find it's actually easier to use a full size, a well made, full sized tool uh, than it is to try and use some of these uh, hobby tools that are produced uh, either very cheaply or or just uh, without real concern for a real regard for what the job is at hand. The only exception to that is uh, if you go to a place that does jewelry making, you can quite often find some quite nice, uh, nicely made smaller hand tools, but that don't have loose joints or overly stiff joints, and they don't have uh, tips that mismatch when you put them together. A little bit more money, but probably worth it. A good tool is, is worth its weight in gold. Yes, I'm not sure. I certainly, the tools that I bought in the UK were of a higher standard than the tools that I bought here. And uh, one of the things that I purchased when I was in the hobby store at its new location was a uh, a marine modeler magazine that actually had a as thick as the magazine, if not slightly thicker, tools catalogue included with it from the UK. Uh, which outlined a number of these kind of tools. In fact, if, if I'd been smart, I would have that in front of me as well. In terms of things like sandpaper, sandpaper is another thing that I always have uh, a lot of uh, in different grains on hand for the stuff that I'm doing. Do you maintain uh, a lot of sandpaper in your workspace, or do you use files, or what, what do you do for sanding? Uh, I, I typically had small Swiss files or... Uh, the smaller mill files, half-cut and double-cut mill files. But for working with styrene and wood recently, I've really taken to these uh, emery boards that uh, that you get at the, uh, I guess, the the beauty section in the totally. in the department store, because you can cut and shape and and otherwise form them into the right size to work inside window frames and uh, on the on a tight, tight, tighter areas of your uh, your work, and they come in a variety of grits, and they seem to last virtually forever in the hobby application. I don't know, maybe the uh, the nails are harder than the styrene in the wood, uh, probably. So they're not they're not overly stressed in the hobby application, and I find they're working terrifically. But I do have uh, bits of. Uh, Sometimes I'll cut a, a slab of thick styrene and then use a spray-mount adhesive and put on a, a 300 or 400 grit paper. Uh, sometimes the, the small packages of, of uh, like almost like a plasticized sandpaper with grits up to 2,000 or 3,000. Very, very fine stuff. You can polish... You can even polish scratches out of uh, clear plastic with these finer uh, finer grits and a bit of water and uh, without uh, destroying the clarity of it, uh, if you take your time. 
and they're available in variety packs of grits from I think 600 up to 2,000, or you can get multiple sheets of the same thickness. I wish I I could remember the name of them, but they, they come in different colors, and one side is a very smooth uh, plastic surface, and the other is the incredibly fine grit. Uh, they are available in the hobby shops. I've seen them there. Uh, I did have some uh, some bad luck with files, with the uh, hobby files. I bought a couple of packets at uh, at various shows, and invariably they're disappointing. They just don't have the, you know, you buy a set of a complete set of files for $10 or $12, and they're all pretty bad. You really have to go to a uh, either a British supplier, like you're suggesting with uh, the model boat, uh, the marine modelers, or uh, a jeweler to get decent files that cut decently for for the hobby. But one thing that I, I can't remember where I heard this, I found it to be true, is that if you use files for brass, you really can't use them for anything else afterwards. They just kind of skate over everything else. And I don't know why it's true, there's got to be some physical property to that, but once you've cut brass with them, they, they're not much good for anything else. So it would pocket might... fill. I would imagine it would pocket fill the file. So the heating well, and application of the brass may actually pocket fill the file, or does it actually knock off parts of the file? Well, it, it shouldn't. It, I mean, unless you're using hardened brass uh, or... Uh, some of the bronze alloys, it really shouldn't round over the tips of the files. And of course, if you've got files, you usually have a, uh, a file card to clean, to clean out the, uh, the cavities, but it just, it, they don't seem to cut very well after that. But, you know, in general terms, the cheaper file sets don't cut very well. Anyway, mm. you, you, if you want a good file, you're looking a miniature file, you're looking at probably spending two or $3 for each shape rather than, $10 for a set of 10. At least. Uh, yeah, no, I, I think my advice, I mean, the files I have are the files I have got in the UK. I haven't bought files since. They were also intended on being used on metal anyway, so they're probably mm -hmm. of a harder conditioning than most of the hobby files that are sold for styrene or wood. But certainly, yeah, my, my recommendation would be to pay a little bit extra and, as you say, shop online or investigate what is available internationally as well. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think the 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 issue with uh, with the UK is that there's a whole different uh, focus on do it yourself over there, and there are a lot more people doing regular fix it work. So there's a there's more of a market for for finer tools than than there are in in North America. But buying cheap tools is a false economy. Uh, I've always found that to be true, and it's true in the hobby as it is in in professional life and and in uh, you know general general renovation and fix it. So don't you'll you'll spend the same amount of money five times to get cheap stuff, or you can spend. A, a lesser amount once and get a decent quality uh, item. So, oh well. <laughs> Certainly. Testified. <laughs> <laughs> Matt Goodwin in the chat is saying, yes, that's the truth. Um, Matt also asked with regards to the white glue, the film 
uh, that occurs with the white glue being dehydrated. Yes, you have to skim the film, uh, but I think that's probably a standard technique if you're using a lot of white glue uh, in the method that Chris and I described anyway. Um, and certainly you either pierce or skim uh, the film just as a, as a matter of general course when using white glue over time. Yeah, I, I'm surprised that I came across this by accident. It just seemed to... Uh, I, I wasn't consciously aware of, of, of letting it evaporate. It was just something that because it wasn't in the bottle anymore, it was uh, able to to off-gas and, and, uh, and let out some of the moisture, so it was working better for me. So, yes, it, it, oh well. as I've gone through, I'm not sure whether it was the last one or the one before, but there was a question on the Scotty Mason show associated with this very phenomenon, and uh, I, I found myself, well, I was, I was at work, but I found myself uh, cognitively yelling at my iPod that the solution was in fact to allow it to uh, to dehydrate a little so chris i i i feel that this is the point to play some funeral music or something like that because we've reached the point in the show called stump chris and oh. The torture begins. Yeah, I know. We've, we've been putting it off. We've been having wonderful talk about tools, but unfortunately, it's that time in the show. And I wanted to start by saying no one has left a review of the show on iTunes yet. So if you would like to pick up some Model Rail Radio swag, the way to do that probably, well, I'm not sure. I mean, we haven't yet recorded some, Chris, so we may be giving away swag left, right, and center in the next few minutes. But an easy way to pick up Model Rail Radio swag is just to leave a review on iTunes. So if you're listening in and you're thinking, there's absolutely no way I can stump Chris when I just give up, um, leave a review on iTunes. And, uh, well, I mean, if, if there are multiple reviews, I'll pick one per show. But if you're the only one to leave a review on iTunes per show, you will receive Model Rail Radio swag. I need to also point out something. I think uh, Steve from Chicago was in the chat earlier and he mentioned that if Stump Chris continues in the direction that it went last week, it may be something where you research a question to ask the Model Rail Radio audience and the first one to respond correctly would get some swag. Uh, but we'll see oh, how we that go this sounds week. much better. <laughs> that sounds much better. Well, um, I, I'll put that out <laughs> to you too, Chris. So if you want to find a question for next week, we might actually, or next show, we might actually throw it out there uh, to the audience. And if someone, you need, I mean, it needs to be something which you won't find through Google. I think we need to, it needs to be a quality of question which will actually take someone a period of time in order to find it or just mysteriously be the right person. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure what direction it will take. But if if you want to take that on as a, as a task for the next show, Chris, I don't mind sending out a, T-shirt to someone who answers the question correctly first. Well, that's 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 a really interesting proposal. I hadn't even thought of it in terms of of that uh, going that route. Um, just with respect to your your iTunes comment, Tom, I tried to to register a user user ID on iTunes, and for some reason, it kept telling me that my session had timed out. And I did a search on that, and I found out that. This is apparently not an uncommon problem with people trying to register usernames on iTunes in order to, to have an Apple ID. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I went in. I didn't see any comments uh, on the iTunes about uh, Model Rail Radio, and I couldn't leave any myself. So I've kind of, I'm not sure what to do about that. Maybe other people have had a similar problem. I should also uh, point out, as you raise that, and this is a this is an important issue. You only see the country that you're in through iTunes. So if people are, I only looked at the US. I probably should have looked at Canada, the UK, Australia, uh, New Zealand, because these are all countries where we've had active correspondence from listeners. So if you have left an iTunes review, and I haven't seen it because I haven't checked the various things. As or after you leave the uh, iTunes review, please email me stump at modelrailradio.com. I'm handling all the uh, swag-related issues through the stump at modelrailradio email address. Uh, and let me know that you've left a review in iTunes and the country that you are in, that you're leaving your review. But yes, I, I have heard similar things, Chris. So if folks having difficulty getting on iTunes and leaving a review you're just going to have to email in a question for Chris to uh, to answer or not answer on the stump section in order to get swag. Or even better, potentially answer the unanswerable question that Chris will concoct for the next show. <laughs> so, for folks listening in who are not aware of the worldwide phenomenon that is stump Chris, my co-host Chris Abbott is very, very, very knowledgeable in the hobby of model railroading and has other rail-related knowledge. And uh, as from last show, we are now running a segment called Stump Chris, where the listeners, that's right, you folks listening to this, are able to email in questions to see if you can stump Chris. And if you stump Chris successfully, and it seems like through a guess, Matt Goodman may have won himself a T-shirt from last show, but if you stump Chris successfully, then you will get sent a Model Rail Radio T-shirt at your respective size to your specific address at no cost to you. And if Chris answers a question incorrectly and you can email uh, stumpofmodelrailradio.com the correct answer, then you will also, or the first person to email in with the correct answer, will also receive a T-shirt. And... The judge's decision is the final. I am the judge. I'm the one who sends out the T-shirts. But this whole thing is designed to be very good-natured and uh, an opportunity to uh, find out some interesting stuff about the model rail hobby. So uh, we have four questioners, four familiar questioners emailing in. And for folks listening in, it's not just that we have the same people on who have also appeared on the show or that Chris knows personally that are emailing questions. Anyone can email in questions, stump at modelrailradio.com, and I encourage people to do that. But this show, we have um, basically the same set of questions that we had last show, but with different questions. And as, uh, I don't know how, I, I promised Matt that I was going to ask his question first. I'm not sure if he's in the chat. Yes, he is. So let me yep. ask Matt's question first. I, I think I feel my laryngitis coming on again. <laughs> Okay, so uh, the first question. Well, he, he actually he actually asked a uh, comedic question, so I'm not going to. Well, maybe I should read out the. Well, anyway, he he asked, "What year did I get my first DCC system, and what brand was it?" Uh, that was his first question. But we're not going to cover that one. Uh, well, apparently Chris knows the answer. But anyway, let's get to his real question. Okay, 
name one manufacturer one manufacturer that has produced a model of the N and W C F wood sided caboose any scale. Note the model's material could be anything. The real life caboose was wood sided. Oh my. Name one manufacturer has produced a model of a Norfolk and Western caboose in any scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, CF, oh, wood sided. I guess the CF might mean wood sided caboose. Which what was that, Tom? Uh, Norfolk and Western CF, which he's put in brackets, wood sided caboose, any scale. Uh, dear me. It's probably one of those uh, obvious answers, like Athern or Walters, but... Uh, that would be too easy. Too, yeah, that would be too easy, wouldn't it? Um, so, no, True Line Trains does that stuff, no. So, uh, Norfolk and Western. Oh, this is so embarrassing. It takes... It, it belies your statement that I have a lot of knowledge in the hobby. Well, uh, he emailed one, two, three, four possible answers. Oh, he did. Okay. Um, uh, four possible answers, any scale, Norfolk and Western. Oh, actually, oh, he says, oh, sorry. Three possible answers. One of them is a two-barrel answer. There we go. Are you happy now, Matt? Is a two-what answer? Uh, well, it's, it seems to be the same company, but operating under two names. Oh. Um, oh, it's so embarrassing. <laughs> I will say... <laughs> well, it's... Uh, you know, the, uh, when you proposed this originally, Tom, you you, uh, you had That's said, already you know, getting any... a T-shirt. We we can end this one here, Chris, and I can ask you another one for a bonus T-shirt for someone else. <laughs> and you, you, are you admitting defeat here? Are you well and truly stumped? I, I'm not. I'm not stumped. It's, there's so much to choose from. Like I was try, trying to uh, impart when you suggested this this uh, this contest uh, of. Uh, Okay, I'll uh, give you more here. time. I'll give you more time and just talk <laughs> candidly about uh, about Norfolk and Western cabooses. Then I knew I knew that there was going to be such a wide range of possible questions that I was opening myself up to. Uh, <laughs> You're a, not a being humiliated yet. You're not being humiliated yet, Chris. Come on. <laughs> um, let's say. Let's say. Uh, Northeastern scale models. Matt has not put down northeastern scale models. I think is is quality craft the same as northeastern scale models? I don't. Is that true? Chat people. Hello, Matt Goodman. Is that okay? Ah. Uh, no. Uh, no, not okay. Okay. Oh, there we go. So Matt was getting the T-shirt anyway, so really, uh, okay. So he's getting a T-shirt anyway. Let me uh, offer the T-shirt out to another listener as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> We're going to have to open our own woolen mill here. Let me see, let me see. So, Ben, 
has emailed in another question. His question is, what firm makes NMRA DCC compatible three rail trains? Mike's train house? MTH? Uh, that's not the answer he offered. It could be the correct oh. answer, though. I'm seem the chat seems to be agreeing with you that that is one of the correct answers. So uh, well, he, he put down he put down Marklin. Marklin, uh, he's looking for something with a conformance warrant. Is that is that it? The is that when he's saying NMRA compatible BCC trains? I don't because know. At, uh, okay, because Atlas makes, uh, or is he? He's not talking about O scale. He's talking about HO scale. He says Markland HO trains a three rail. The third rail is a series of stubs in the middle of the ties, contacted Some by a like pickup. So this okay. is yet an, This could be. This could be a t-shirt. Uh, MTH may be the correct answer as well. Folks in the model rail radio community, uh, Stephen Chicago is saying that MTH was purely a psych on his part and it may, in fact, have been the incorrect answer. This one we are going to have to take back to the community. I'm going to ask you one last one and I may be sending oh. out three T-shirts this, uh, this show. Hang, hang on a sec. Okay. Hang on, hang on. The, the question was what company makes... Compatible NMRA compatible three rail trains, but it didn't specify a scale, right? It didn't specify a scale. Aha. Uh -huh. So as long as it's a three rail train that's NMRA DCC compatible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so MTH is probably the right answer. Oh, we'll find out. Okay, so we'll I'm going to give you one more week. with the potential that I will be bankrupted by the end of the show. And let me see. Well, Steve is helping out here, so I'm going to ask his question. Okay, Steve, this this could be your chance to receive a Model Rail Radio T-shirt. No help from the chat, please. <clears throat> it's a narrow-gauge question in two parts. Question one, we all know the narrow-gauge steam locomotive, the K27, has a nickname. What is nickname? Mudhen. Mudhen, Okay. First part, right? No T-shirt for Steve just yet. Second part of the question: Why was it called a mud hen? <laughs> uh, Matt Goodman says he knows, but no help in the chat. <laughs> why was it called a mud hen? Yes. <laughs> oh dear me! I I don't know why it was called a mud hen. <laughs> Okay, so he gets half a T-shirt then, I guess. A mud hen is a chunky black and grayish bird, technically known as an American coot. They require a great deal of effort to become airborne, paddling across with the water before lifting off. There's a YouTube link associated with that. Uh, the way in which their heads bob when they walk or swim has earned them the name mud hen. It's no surprise the K27 gained the nickname a chunky, relatively heavy steam engine running on not the smoothest narrow-gauge track with the whole drive wheel spinning frantically and uh, stumbling on itself. G 
just to be uh, moving at moderate speed. So it puts a lot of effort to get just a little bit of speed up. And that's why it was called a mud hen. So okay. that, you All learn right. something new every day. And on Stump Chris today, <laughs> we have learned that. And yes, yeah, so Matt, uh, please email stump com with an address. You'll be receiving a T-shirt, or maybe even two T-shirts. Oh, and also with your t- preferred T-shirt size, um, if you want to deck out your entire family in model rail radio T-shirts, um, yeah, email multiple sizes and we'll, we'll see what we can do. And uh, for uh, Steve and Ben, I think in Steve's case, uh, I could certainly probably send you a mug or a button or something um, because I guess Chris got part of the question right. His, I guess your knowledge of uh, North American uh, water avian species may not necessarily be as good as your knowledge of model trains. So maybe that was an unfair question because it was more a, um, I don't know, a, uh, a zoology question, I guess, rather than a train-related one. But anyway, we will, we'll get you something nice, Steve. So um, email stump at modelrailradio.com and uh, we'll send you out something nice. And Ben as well. Uh, we are waiting on uh, whether MTH does actually make a three-rail NMRA DCC-compatible uh, engine. And um, if that is the case, you won't be receiving anything this show, but no doubt you will be uh, emailing in many future stumps and may actually win something along the line. However, if that was the correct or the incorrect answer, more importantly, uh, well, Ben, I guess, the responsibility is down to you to actually do the searching and uh, get us back if it's not actually the case. And we can move on from there, and I will be sending you a model rail radio T-shirt as well if that's, in fact, the case. And this just sounds like fun to folks. Uh, if uh, I, I guess, Chris, you've um, you've lowered your average a little bit after the show. Uh, we didn't, oh, I however, think only get... lower than I am. <laughs> yeah, I, I think because you're in ill health, it's probably not really fair. We did miss Ron's question. Ron has been uh, pitching for a model rail radio uh, T-shirt, uh, but I think what I'll do is uh, save his stump for uh, next time with the view. He'll be first off the stumping block. And uh, for folks listening in, email stump at modelrailradio.com, preferably model rail-related, various uh, water bird-related questions may be thrown in there uh, as need be, but typically just model rail or rail-related, ideally, uh, and we'll see what we can do with with Chris in particular. It looks like MTH has their own proprietary digital command system. Ben, you got your T-shirt. Yeah, they're not DCC compatible. Well, you know what to there do, Ben. Email stump at Model Rail Radio and address, and uh, yes, I will be a uh, poor man for the foreseeable future. So thanks, for folks, for uh, participating in Stump Chris. And now we get on to the, to the main body of the show, and there's been, um, there's been a bit of correspondence through the mailing list. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. It's the uh, Scorpius uh, system... And uh, uh, for wireless control of uh, the slot cars and seeing how that could fit into a wireless uh, throttle system for model railways that's, that's more universal, that doesn't require you to purchase um, uh, the throttles from a specific manufacturer. And uh, Ron also had been looking at uh, some aristocrat uh, 
wireless controllers that were uh, proprietary, that had their own uh, locked-in way of doing things. And uh, I think they they were sort of a, a bit of a dead end in terms of expandability. So uh, he's been trying to coerce the developer of the slot car wireless system into trying something for model railways. And uh, I had uh, put my two cents into the conversation by, you know, I agree that we need something that we need a good inexpensive throttle that can be used by anyone. Um, A lot of the efforts that, that I put in with the control concepts exchange group about 10 or 12 years ago, we were looking at more of a simulation controller. We wanted something that could, uh, that could manage, uh, the weight of the train and, uh, the system would also know where the train was on the layout and feed that back to a simulation processor, which would modify the DCC command stream. And it was really complicated, uh, but it was going for a different, uh, end result. Um, in in the hobby now, we've got really three major manufacturers doing DCC systems, that being Lens, Digitrax, and NCE, and none of their throttles are usable on the other systems. So when you, you buy in, you tie in. And especially if you're at a, at a train show or you like to go around to, to operating sessions on other people's uh, layouts, you don't want to have to have one of each kind of throttle to take for yourself. Uh, some of these really large layouts that people are contemplating or have already built require 10 or 11 or 12 operators or some cases 15 or more operators. And for various reasons, the layout owner doesn't always have enough throttles to go around, but it's kind of hard to expect your average, uh, your average attendee to bring their own you know, $200 wireless throttle with them for your system every time they come. Um, if there was an open system for uh, handheld throttles that was uh, robust and either based on the Wi-Fi standard uh, that was usable, like the new um, the new Y throttle that uh, Steve uh, was uh, trying out and posting some information on, and a couple of other listeners have. I've done some extensive work with now. Uh, if there was something cheap, cheap and cheerful, speed direction address uh, that that didn't require you to have an extensive network of wiring to plug in and acquire, or just could run it off your own basic computer router, uh, I think it would uh, boost the the adoption of DCC in areas where it's not currently uh, currently enjoying uh, uh, any use but uh, it, it's there's a lot of development work that has to happen to go through the debugging it's one thing to have a, a test system operating in your own basement it's another thing entirely to have 30 or 40 of these things on five or six different layouts at a show not interfering with one another and not picking up people's trains on other layouts uh, or causing turnouts to switch direction in the middle of sessions uh, uncontrollably. So 
and of course, before you can offer these for sale, you have to have them tested by the local uh, communications authority, which governs the whole wireless uh, spectrum uh, before they can be sold into different regions. And that costs money and it takes time and you have many applications to write and uh, procedures to go through. You have to schedule tests and whatnot. So it's it's not a trivial effort, but it probably would be well rewarded for, uh, I know there's lots of people in this area alone who would love to have a robust wireless handheld throttle uh, that they could uh, that they could move from system to system. There's a lot of operators around here that would uh, would dearly love to travel from layout to layout with their own throttles. Uh, it would help out uh, to mitigate some of the expense of uh, setting up the bigger layouts and uh, just increase the convenience. And it'd be great, but I, I don't know who's going to be the first to step up and and try to do an open an open source hardware and software throttle for uh, for DCC across all systems. It's nice. The JMRI is really the ultimate interface for this sort of thing because if you can have a, a USB dongle or uh, with Wi-Fi or Bluetooth and uh, or a Wi-Fi router with, uh, with the same uh, and the JMRI manages whatever booster network that you have, whether Lentz, uh, Brock, uh, Digitrax, uh, NCE, and that becomes transparent. We don't need to interface with that. JMRI deals with that. All it has to do is interpret the, the commands from the handheld throttles and, and away you go. Most of the work is done. Uh, it's, the, it's that little bit of hardware at the, at the uh, user interface that, that has to be tackled. And then, and then we've got a, a across-the-board system. So very exciting. Be uh, great to see it happen. Uh, happy to help out uh, if anybody has any questions or concerns or if I can be uh, useful in finding out information from any manufacturers and funneling it back through, I'm uh, happy to help out there. So, very cool. Yeah, I mean, certainly a theme that's come up in previous shows. In fact, really, I, I want to talk about this in two possible directions. The first comes from, uh, I guess, my discussion, as I described maybe two or three shows ago, associated with finding a whole series of model railroaders from the early 80s and there was certainly a, a renaissance in that period in terms of computerizing layouts and getting together breadboards and soldering things together and I think Duncan McCree in terms of what he does is the, the modern embodiment of that in terms of getting um, not just turnouts, he has a lot of uh, small chip programming uh, related things on his his site and also just the potential for so if regulation is an issue, how do you overcome regulation? Well, the first is empowering the individual actually to do the, the final point of connection. But also, and, and Duncan raised this, in fact, a number of people raised this, Steve raised it uh, probably most eloquently when he was on the show, is the idea that a lot of these handheld wireless devices that we now have, be they iPods, iPhones, iPads, uh, a wide variety of other non-Apple-branded products, um, particularly the open-source Java-based uh, phones and these kind of things, have the ability very easily to run throttle-like controllers. And the, I guess the, the sense of having a physical controller which you are twisting 
twisting or manipulating in some way is the only thing that is missing from these kind of interfaces. You just have a, a touch controller, uh, which you can manipulate, maybe even a, a shut-off button. Uh, and certainly all these things are standardized, particularly if you had a standard router or anything that gave Wi-Fi compatibility that then connected to the kind of computerized end of the layout, connected to uh, JMRI or, you know, what have you. So I guess my sense is probably it's more down to uh, app developers or people that have the necessary knowledge to move them onto the kind of handheld devices that an increasing number of folks have, uh, with the view that you could, I guess, get a, an iPod or iPad or something similar if you didn't want the, the phone specifically in order to do these kind of things. So I guess what you're describing here in terms of the need to have uh, uh, communication certification is only really applicable if you were going to create your own uh, piece of hardware that had maybe a slider or a turn dial and buttons on it. Um, but certainly the handheld classes of, kind of modern computing devices take a lot of that away because the actual manufacturer has had to get that kind of certification, surely, Chris. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, Tom. I guess I'm I'm sort of uh, retrocentric here. I really <laughs> like the the knob and switch interface for controlling a train. It, it's uh, it's intuitive and it's straightforward, and you you don't have to teach anybody about it. And it's um, it's not glitchy as such. If you happen to touch the screen in the wrong spot, you might inadvertently Cause actuate something or turn something off, um, and I'd, I'd like it to be as simple as possible and as straightforward as possible. And yeah, if I had an iPod, an iPhone, iPad, uh, one of the Android phones, uh, maybe I would maybe I would catch on to the touchscreen interface and it would be fine. But I, I'm really uh, I'm really a uh, uh, physical control kind of person. I like the, the this control does this function. It, it, it's not, um, they're not reprogrammable like a touchscreen is. Uh, you, you can have ones with, uh, I know that some of the touchscreen interfaces, you can have a throttle slider on the left hand of the screen or the right hand of the screen, or you can have it as a switching throttle, which, which doesn't have a reversing switch on it per se, but it, you actually go upwards to go forward and then drag it all the way down to the bottom of the screen to go backwards. It's uh, more like the uh, the European, like the Rocco-style throttles, uh, which have a center off just on the throttle and no switch at all, no reversing switch at all. But, you know, um, whatever can be leveraged, whatever can be reused from the existing technology, uh, that's great. Maybe... <laughs> Maybe we could uh, take a, the dedicated port on an iPod or an iPhone and plug a knob and switch into it and use that. I don't know. Mm. Uh, you know, as a as an adjunct. I wanted to ask uh, one of the other topics that came up in the in the discussion list was what books people were reading. 
Certainly. And what were they getting inspiration from? And I wanted to know what you were reading right now, Tom. Oh, my goodness. Well, I, <laughs> I'm i in the midst of getting a chapter together for simulated biology. However, I have two piles of books, which I read from. One for these insane chapters, and the other in order to stop myself from going insane due to these insane chapters. And I have gone through a series of uh, circa 1970s uh, modelling books. And what's fascinated me is that I read um, I read a, a lot of the, the model rail. We've had the discussion associated with the, the model rail periodicals that I read. But I also read a lot of the um, uh, plastic and metal hobbyist uh, magazines. I mentioned the... Uh, the Marine Modeler, a lot of those kind of things too. And I found some articles which uh, reminded me that what in uh, a series of old books that I had, there were more detailed applications of various strange technical and weathering techniques. And this seems, um, I, I don't know, it's, it's hard to map onto model rail initially, but to say the techniques are very good for capturing uh, aging and weathering in a very confined space. So, for example, if you had an alleyway on your layout, you wouldn't use the same technique in the alleyway for weathering that you would use on uh, an open broad street where there was a lot of light falling. And this has gotten my mind thinking about various uh, painting and weathering techniques that I had used previously, the example given was with regards to um, it's a Second World War uh, diorama specifically, but they are modelling the front-facing roadway and also the kind of alleyway that goes between a building and the side of a church. And they describe the uh, weathering techniques associated with that. And I went back and found uh, there were a series of books published in the 70s associated with this kind of plastic modelling um, and, and particularly diorama painting techniques. Uh, and I'm reading that in parallel uh, to this biology stuff and uh, systems theory stuff that I'm reading for the chapter. I'm really enjoying it, actually. The thing that I was doing last night was taking uh, magazine articles. They're from, I think, 2005 and 2009, uh, respectively, and going back to this book from the early 70s, which describes the technique in a, in a more thorough fashion than these magazine articles do. But it's amazing how little new is there, actually, in these, in these weathering techniques. The effects of colour, the understanding of um, how you actually use light in terms of you know, areas of a, of a layout or a, a diorama that is particularly well lit versus uh, not particularly well lit is just absolutely fascinating. And I've tried this with um, uh, uh, pencil, um, what's the term, graphite uh, uh, weathering recently uh, to some interesting effect. So to describe the technique specifically, it is using non-natural colours, uh, pastels, and not strong pastels, but uh, lighter pastels on effects on... Uh, brickwork in particular, just to give a different kind of highlighting. It's hard to describe, but if you can imagine even adding uh, violets and purples and 
uh, yellows and oranges in areas of dark or what appear to be dark to just really get the the striking uh, elements through. It's almost a reverse of the Franklin and South Manchester painting technique or weathering technique, where that is very much... Well, I mean, he may actually use it in, in narrow ways, but certainly in the main part of the layout, almost over-weathered, really. But there, he has a lot of details. I should actually do that. I should pull out my um, Dave Freire photograph, Franklin and South Manchester book, and go through that and look at the alleyways differently. But that's what I'm reading currently uh, in, in you, terms of the hobby. Can you, can you put a couple of the names of the books up in the show notes? I can uh, do one better. I can even, because I'm actually in the bedroom recording this show, I can even get the books and read the to you. Okay. So the book that actually has the weathering was Scale Armor 2, it also covers the dioramas. It's published by Compendium Euro Modelsum, and it's a small hardcover book. Uh, the You can probably get it on uh, ABE books. And I've been hitting up ABE quite a lot recently. That, that I need to point out, is a very good reference, uh, a very good location to find... Because most of the books that we would use really now are out of print. Also, obviously, historical books. If you're looking at particular regions or whatever, abebooks.com, all one word, uh, put in the region and you will probably find countless out of print uh, books, pamphlets, these kind of things at very reasonable prices too. I mean, for certain things, obviously, they charge higher prices, but... For example, even on my Amazon wish list, I've taken to typing in the book titles in ABE books and finding literally pennies on the dollar priced versions that are secondhand and in very good condition. Um, yep. yep. But I would thoroughly recommend, uh, and now I buy um, probably more than I should through there. The, the local secondhand bookstores are okay, uh, but I found myself increasingly going down particular kind of rat hole like modeling roots which have encouraged me to uh <laughs> to uh, to use ABE heavily uh, but in terms of um, particularly modeling books from the 70s I have a, a good selection downstairs I think there was I don't know there've been various periods where I think color photography in terms of the books from the 70s it had just reached the level of almost modern color, obviously not digital color, but the printing techniques were sufficiently good that you could get very detailed, um, good depth of focus photographs of a lot of models and also um, just endless descriptions of how to achieve uh, the technique. So I bought very heavily uh, in books of that kind of era and the 80s as well. I don't know what has happened more recently, there are a number of small publishers that I follow, um, which I will add to the show notes if I, if I get around to collecting them, and they will typically do um, small print run uh, uh, titles associated with very specific things. And also, because of my background with regards to toy soldiers and military figures and these kind of things, um, I know uh, a number of the, the Kind of premier painters in the field and occasionally get pinged when they have their own publications coming out. Uh, so small publication stuff is harder to find. ABE books, 
phenomenally good resource if you any i mean if once you've picked uh, a particular time period once you've picked a particular railroad if you're doing uh, prototype modeling specifically even if you're doing proto lance modeling uh, or even freelance modeling i think ab books is a phenomenally good resource for getting you the right books at the right price uh, and certainly giving you a vast amount of material uh, depending on your specific interests so, Chris, I'm going to reverse the question to you. What are you reading currently? Well, uh, I mentioned earlier that I got several uh, tens of pounds of magazines in, <laughs> in the house. And uh, amongst those were some uh, model railroaders from the 80s. And uh, I was, it was funny because the one I was reading just recently, uh, a young modeler, uh, about 12 or 13, was lambasting model railroader for being uh, essentially elitist and their their magazine was focused on advanced people who only build everything from scratch and uh, you know looking at uh, it seems to go in cycles and but I've been I read the older books because uh, I like the articles uh, I like the authors uh, the content is still largely valid so I'm going through the old model railroaders here and uh, uh, my odd, the odd periodical comes in for my uh, my Canadian National Special Interest Group and uh, a recent uh, arrival from the Narrow Gauge and Industrial Review from from the UK. And uh, really, it's been periodicals lately. I haven't uh, delved into my hardcovers. They've been they're all out and on the shelves, but uh, haven't really had a chance to to dig in into any of the the heavier, weightier volumes lately. And I, I guess it's because my attention span has been a little affected recently. Yes. yes. Uh, the, <laughs> the shorter articles rather than the, the long uh, epics uh, are able to hold my attention better and uh, they're suiting my, my current mood. Uh, really a terrific amount of stuff in the older magazines, especially in the areas of, uh, of do-it-yourself and small projects you can build, evening projects, uh, stuff that's stuff that you can make from, from what you would think possibly is scrap material, offcuts, mat board, uh, Bristol board, uh, Strathmore, uh, popsicle sticks even, stir, coffee stir sticks, um, using natural items for, for colors, uh, coffee, tea, uh, uh, certain fruit juices. It's there's a, a tremendous amount of creativity that you you can you can see when you're when you're looking into uh, a lot of the older articles where raw materials weren't as as available or certainly as widespread. Um, and that said, uh, I've got another few hundred pounds of magazines to go through, so I've got material for the rest of my life. Uh, I really don't have to go out and buy anything new at the moment. In terms of collecting oh. magazines, do you do you cut out the articles or do you just maintain them whole as as the paperweights? Um, you know, it's it's funny you should ask that. I know people that cut out articles and uh, and ads and kind of collect them together in in binders and uh, and almost scrapbooks in some cases that. Uh, they're not really scrapbooks because you have to see both sides of the page, but there's something about 
cutting up a publication. I, I just, I can't bring myself to do it. Mm. Um, I, I don't know. It's, I, I'm sure I'm not the only one who feels that way, but, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> I could be, I could be, uh, suffering from a, um, a rare affliction of not wanting to, to cut up the whole, uh, the vivisect my, my magazines. Uh, yes. I, I cut up Model Railroader mainly because of space constraints and just because of the sheer volume. They haven't, well, I'm not sure. I mean, certainly in the period of time that I've maintained the subscription, they haven't dramatically reduced their size, which I've noticed a number of other periodicals that I purchase have in recent years in particular. The issue that I have with Model Railroader is that I... My interests are primarily with regards to the layouts and some of the minor modeling techniques, but a majority of the stuff that they contain, particularly the ads, really take up space. It's also the format of the magazine. I've thought about this recently, particularly with my UK magazines, because they have a similar volume of ads in them, although, as we discussed previously, in a slightly different format. However, because they are... um, they're actually spine-bound and glued as opposed to model railroaders stapling. They are distinctly different in terms of actually cutting them up. But with model railroaders, the older ones I've kept intact, but the modern ones, certainly the ones in the past five years that I've gotten through subscription, it will get to a critical space. But the other thing with regards to cutting them up, is you actually go through them again. And the ritual of spending a couple of days going through a nice-sized pile of magazines and actually rereading the articles and collating them and these kind of things reminds you... Um, I mean, for example, I have come to model railroaders where I thought this is actually too good as a whole to cut up. So I'm not completely obsessively religious with regards to that, but... I do have a finite shelf space, and I do like the shelf space that I have. And also what I tend to do is, as you've described, I arrange the articles that I do want in clear plastic sheets uh, and then put them together in in, uh, ring binders. So I do treat the articles that I want with a degree of respect after they've been uh, cut out. And my sense is really it's just exactly the same full-page ad and ads for equipment and various other things that I'm never going to purchase nor have an interest in or associated narrative articles, which I have no real interest in. I don't know. I guess my feeling is that my space is relatively finite for these kind of things. Having said that, however, um, in terms of my other kind of hobby magazines, um, I do maintain a lot of them that have a lot of content that I'm not particularly interested in uh, so I think, I don't know, uh, my introduction to Model Railroader was reading it in uh, a Walmart waiting for, uh, you know, waiting to be checked out. And I think my initial introduction to Model Railroader gave me a sense of the publication, I don't know, almost in a kind of quality sense, versus things which I have purchased in, you know, news agents in the UK or Australia or these kind of things. And maybe... Model Railroader is just suffering because of its... um, Well, I mean, I I think it's a wonderful thing that you can actually purchase Model Railroader in, you know, a Walmart grocery store in the US. I mean, I think that's a a real benefit for the Model Railroading hobby, but at the same time, 
Um, for my own sense, the, I don't know, the advertising in particular and just the volume of the ads in it, although my wife regularly passes me a Wyatt or something, or even worse, the women's magazines and the fashion magazines have even more advertising than more railroaded does. So I don't know. But because I like the articles and the layouts in particular, I do have a number of ring binders that are now filled with, you know, the the best of as far as I'm concerned, which makes it easier for flicking through too. I don't have... In certain magazines that I've given away in the past, I have had remorse after the fact and thought about articles which, you know, I've, I've passed on to other people. But I've not had that experience cutting through model railroaders just yet. Uh, so maybe... It's- I have a fear. <laughs> I, I'm afraid that I have... I, I, there's, if I cut out an article on a topic I'm interested in today and I save that article sometime in the future I'm going to be interested in some other aspect of the hobby and that article, the, the remainder of the magazine that I've discarded will have had that information in it I understand the fear uh, but I also <laughs> think it's a semi it's a, I won't say an irrational but it is a semi-rational fear just because of the the, the other frustration I had which I've uh, talked about uh, and with other model rail magazines, it's just the replication of articles. And I think, certainly looking historically at model railroad, there have been a few standout articles which are typically then recaptured and released in the booklets they release as well. And I don't know, I think the nature of this kind of information is it becomes so voluminous that it is... For example, I had this experience this morning that I was looking for a particular article in a periodical... And it took me 25 minutes to find that based on the fact that I knew the magazine and issue number that it was in. Just 25 minutes in finding the magazine and getting it done, working through that. My feeling is that's based on knowledge that I have immediately to go through. And I've had to do this as well, as I'm sure all folks listening in and yourself included, Chris, have had to do as well. To go through magazines to try and find an article based on something that I've thought about can be phenomenally time-consuming if you're describing the kind of volume of information that you clearly have in paper form as well. And I think really, to be honest, I will include articles in my cutouts which are really not even in current interest, um, you know, really my current interest. But a lot of the techniques which are covered in these magazine articles are very much tailored towards uh, the beginner or the, you know, a, a modeler which either they don't have the skill set that I have or they don't have the interest that I have. And you are right, there is the potential in the future for me to miss out on a particular article that I've cut out. But the volume of information that we have to consume typically means that we won't remember that. And the only way that we can be reminded of that is if we see in the future a reference to a particular article. Because as you've described, it takes a considerable amount of time to physically go end-to-end through these periodicals and the way in which we remember where things are. I mean, for example, even going through... Having done the cutouts, having put the things in the in the plastic sheets, put them in the ring binders, put them back on the wall, two, three, four years later, I will come back to them and not recall the articles. So that's within even yes. things that I've saved. 
within the the amount of information, just the sheer volume alone seems to make me think that at least by cataloging, I'm condensing something, and in the potential of the fear of the future of not finding something, the difficulty in actually going back and finding it probably outweighs the potential of throwing it away. Does that make some sense? Well, yeah, it does. It does. Now, one of the resources that I relied on heavily for a long time was the Model Train Magazine Index, which was put together on the web by a private person who was trying to catalog all the the tables of contents of all the magazines that were out there from, you know, as far back as he could go up to the present. And he would get contributions of, of uh, uh, table of contact in tech index pages from contributors. And at some point, uh, Kalmbach Publishing bought this. And the last update of the, the database was, was in March of 2008. So it's already two years out of date, you know, and uh, you know, I, what what is cataloged is very useful, and I use it a lot. I'll remember that there was a model railroader or a narrow gauge and short line gazette article on something that I'm looking for, and I'll type that into the the database, and I'll find it. And I know that I have all my MRs in one area, I have all my RMCs in another area, my gazettes, and I can go to the particular issue and uh, and pick it out and just read it and then I've got it, but if they don't continually update the server, uh, the system, it's, there's no point in looking. There's no point in looking on the database. And I'm more, I was worried when it was purchased by a commercial concern that yeah. that was going to be the case, yeah. and that's what happened. Um, as a practical example, as you've described it, how long does it actually take you to find the specific issue? Uh, between, between 10 and 15 minutes which is uh, significantly better than having to go to a library or someone else's house. It's not bad. But then again, see, I'm falling into this trap of in order to know anything about a subject, I have to know everything about a subject. Certainly. And that is ultimately you, you, you turn into a tar pit there. You, you never get anything done because you're constantly getting, trying to get that next little piece of information which may or may not be relevant, may, may or may not be important. Um, like the other week I said, uh, you know, there's a, there's a point where it's good enough, yeah. where your modeling is good enough, the representation is good enough, everybody gets it. Yes, we know this is a, this is a Duluth Misabian iron range steam engine pulling a string of uh, ore cars. We, we've got yeah. it. We, You've, ad- you've admitted to, to being you've admitted to being a lifetime member of Rivet Counters Anonymous with regards to I was, your yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, I, uh, I can change if I have to. It's 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 fine. I, I uh, there is a the striving for, for perfection can be an obstacle to progress. Certainly, that was a quote from one of uh, the directors of a company I used to work for, and. At some point, it's good enough. Just go ahead and go with it. Uh, maybe your next iteration will be a little better, but you know, maybe you'll never get to that next iteration. Yeah. If you constantly, you're constantly thrashing, trying to make what you're doing now perfect, you'll never get anywhere. So at some point, you have to cut and run. You have to go ahead and, and just do it. Um, and 
I must remind myself of this from time to time. It sometimes I forget, and that affects my hobby, and it affects well, it affects all aspects of your life, right? You just yeah, can't. I mean, I think I think the nature of drowning in information, and this is certainly why I like to maintain hardcover books and these kind of things too. I mean, I find myself, particularly in the evening, uh, whilst I do go through magazine you know, periodicals for, for particular articles. I do prefer hardcover books, and I think my preference is really moving towards uh, finding, finding hard, well, not necessarily hardcover, but at least book information. The nature of the information that you receive in periodicals is almost like fast food in some regard. Um, and I agree with you. I'm very much of the school of kind of finding information to the to the greatest possible depth, and that's really my my frustration um, with regards to the periodicals too, is that they never really get to the level uh, of depth that I, uh, you know, that that I want. Uh, and then I I move to hardcovers, and I think that was really the uh, discussion uh, point from the from the mailing list correspondence was. Uh, I guess the movements between magazines and books and these kind of things and, and where people end up. And we have perfectly represented at least two ends of a of a possible multi-parts uh, uh, dichotomy in terms of uh, of where we get our information from and how we actually use this information. Yeah, yeah. At some point, well, the, the quest for the knowledge, I have no problem with that. That's, that's great. Um, striving for... Um, a, a real in-depth understanding of the subject that you're you're trying to represent. That's great, but um, understanding that we we don't have a shrink ray, we're not going to be able to take the real thing and and reduce it to uh, a perfect scale representation. We're going to get close, um, and that should be good enough, and it should be enjoyable. We should be able to enjoy the hobby. It's supposed to be a hobby, not a um, uh, one of the labors of Hercules, right? It's, uh, it's not, and also, it's not, it's not, I mean, academia is academia, and this is really what I get in parallel because, you know, writing academic chapters, I know what academia is, I know what being obsessive, and what we need to do needs to be, in one part, I guess, mindful with regards to the historical or relevant implications of what we're doing, but fundamentally, it's a little train that moves around on a track with buildings and grass and stuff associated with it. It's not academic by its very nature. The elements of realism and obsession associated with the elements of realism are very good in and of itself. But you need to always put into perspective the external observer may be captured in the wonder that you put into the hobby, but you don't need to know absolutely everything about a, a specific uh, line in order to start modeling that line. And I think what we've described here, and also online there are a wide variety of resources as well, but in terms of in terms of books, there's abbooks.com. In terms of uh, publications, there are a wide variety. And the resources that you've described, I guess eBay and these kind of things, I've, I've bought uh, episodes of Model Railroad or on eBay, uh, and uh, have utilized it to find particular railroads that I was interested in. I found what model railroaders were there, put in the eBay search items, and uh, and worked from there. Another resource. Yeah, one, one uh, that I got, uh, I have had really good service through is is a Libris. It's another book book finding service. 
uh, similar to ABE. Uh, I have dealt with a number of booksellers in, in England directly, uh, Andrew Neal, Martin Bott, that, that carry um, really transport-specific books. They're, they're uh, buses, trains, planes, warships, military, you know, tanks, all that good stuff. Um, and the wonderful thing is that I don't have to make a telephone call to England or I don't have to make a telephone call to, to darkest South Africa to, to, uh, search a bookshop. I can send my requests, uh, via form on, on the web and, and I will get an answer and almost, almost instantaneous answer telling me yes or no and a price and a condition. And that's tremendous, uh, probably one of the best things that's, that's come out of the internet is the communication about information, little pockets of information around the world, either through uh, a small bookshop that may have a publication for sale or uh, historical associations or the uh, societies, the preservation societies, the museums themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, in Canada here, we have uh, the National Archive. Uh, I'm sure uh, there are similar services for the Smithsonian and other uh, university collections where you can contact those organizations and ask them about their historical, uh, I think they're called finds and fonts of Definitely. information. Definitely. And for a nominal fee, you can obtain uh, copies of articles, copies of uh, photographs, um, you know, technical information. It's, it's amazing. It's, uh, but again, it's it can be information overload. It can bog you down and stop you from moving exactly. forward. Exactly. Yes. The the right amount and and work out uh, work out what you need to know. And I think there is. I mean, clearly there there is a a passion and enjoyment of immersing oneself in this kind of information. And obviously, if we're buying old books and old magazines, then we're doing it for probably a. Uh, a, a deep respect for the information, if, if anything more. Well, unfortunately, Chris Bertie is once again ending the show uh, at a particular time. He's he's literally been chewing on the side of the laptop and protesting his lack of dinner currently. So once again, Bertie, I think, has probably caused us to wrap up Model Rail Radio. Um, in terms of closing closing thoughts, are you going to be doing anything in the next couple of weeks that you know in advance that you'll be reporting about, or are you just getting back into the, the swing of things for the potential of starting some work on the, the garden layout shortly? Well, I, I have a number of tasks that I have to undertake in the next couple of weeks. The first one is that... Uh, that I have to help out with another garden, the other garden railway I mentioned, uh, with the ties, cutting the ties. The second one is to start construction of my own garden line. Uh, a third one is to move the final machine tool that I've purchased for my shop down into the shop. And uh, I have to clean up some more shelving to, in order to do that. So I might have to uh, consolidate my collection of uh, paper down, oh, maybe by a third somehow to uh, to make the space I need for that. Um, and 
I'd like to start in on a couple of the, the little kits that I've been picking up, including the Danielson building and a, a couple of other wood craftsman kits that have made their way into my possession over the past couple of years. Um, there just there doesn't seem to be enough time in the day. Uh, um, I, the last, no, seriously, the last four days I've done 17 hours of overtime at work on top of the regular yes. shifts. Yes. Uh, because of the the press of business currently, and um, you know it's it's high high summer is coming along here, and I don't want to be spending my spare time uh, in in a windowless office uh, typing away on a computer. Yes, uh, I hear that. Testified. Yeah. Cubicle workers unite. Yes. No, oh, uh, I forgot. I forgot. Uh, the uh, the Spinov speedometer from <laughs> Bacris. Certainly. The DC the DCC version uh, to plug into the uh, JMRI via the Sprog unit from the UK is available as of yesterday. So, oh, very good. if you want one of the yes, I just got an email from uh, the proprietor and. Uh, he had all the hardware and components together, and his first production unit was to be ready uh, yesterday afternoon. So, Terrific. Uh, if you're looking for one of them to plug into your PC and uh, use via JMRI, send an order in. I know mine's going in very shortly. Very and, good. Uh, very good. Well, that, that's great news, and I, I look forward to having an actual uh, you having an actual uh, long-term review copy to give uh, to give future updates about. Next couple of weeks for me, hopefully I'll be laying some ballast and possibly uh, working on this engine house, and maybe photos will be in the uh, Model Rail Radio Facebook group, which has been relatively quiet recently, but hopefully we've stoked up some interest with regards to the topics of discussion today. Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been too long since our last chat, but I look forward to uh, to chatting with you in two weeks' time. Yes, I've missed it myself. Uh sitting here thinking about talking and trying to catch up on the email list and and uh, looking forward to tonight's uh, chat and uh, really enjoyed it as usual. So uh, look forward to possibly two weeks from today carrying on from where we've left off. Wonderful. Always a pleasure, Chris. Take care. Cheers, Tom. <laughs>